Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 35 in our series for 2017. And today's date is Friday the 29th of September. And Leon, today we're talking with Hugh Evans, a most interesting and enterprising man with a recipe for business efficiency. That's right. That's He's talking about his uh, business design and strategic architecture consultancy from here on. Yep. And and then after that, we've got a chat with RMIT economist Sinclair Davidson about the position of the ship of state. That's right. And uh, looking at uh, issues of budget deficits. So first, let's have the chat with Hugh Evans. Hugh Evans, uh, tell us about From Here On and Human-Centred Design. From Here On is a business transformation uh, consultancy. Essentially, what we do is we help organisations to um, change uh, And uh, what's different about our organisation is that uh, we uh, are a community of uh, technology and strategic architects and uh, designers. And uh, with that capability, we can help organisations to reshape themselves around a vision for experience. So that would be experience for their customers, customer journeys and customer experience. Or it could be a uh, vision for their employee experience. So how do employees actually experience the organisation from the inside? So to some extent, you may be changing the company and even changing its workforce and its strategy. Yes, absolutely. So we've found that uh, uh, the world of strategy in large organisations has changed quite a lot in in recent years. Um, Organisations are are moving away from these big five-year sort of static views uh, of of where they want to get to and they need to be more real-time and and more um, proactive and reactive to what's happening uh, in the marketplace. So technology is also right at the core of strategy now for uh, every organisation and given that we started as a technology architecture business in 2002, that's very much in our DNA. DNA, uh, what we're uh, what we're now finding is that um, there's a very big shift in in uh, in the market towards uh, personalised uh, experiences for the consumer. Uh, so if you think about banks like uh, Commonwealth Bank in Australia and um, uh, basically all the banks are now looking to um, move to a customer driven strategy, um, our organisation helps um, organisations like those banks to to make that transformation happen. So how does human centred design do that? Human centred design is essentially about uh, uh, it's a discipline that has grown out of the field of human computer interface in the 80s and also product design or industrial design. So there's a design discipline there with you know, conducting design research, understanding how people interact with products and services and using that design research to create products and services that people actually uh, prefer and thus are ultimately more competitive. Now that way of thinking is finding its way into services for um, insurance companies and for retailers and for airlines and for banks and uh, it's also finding its way all the way up um, to strategy. So how do we create an organisation that better connects with people? A lot of senior managers of course are really scared of technology and so that must also figure in your strategy. Technology is becoming democratised inside organisations. So, so what we're finding is that uh, the role of the CIO is changing uh, in organisations to become more of an enabler rather than the the, the person that controls the technology um, uh, agenda. And uh, how do we actually disseminate that technology um, amongst increasingly um, savvy uh, um, business leaders and and, and 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 employees across the business? And uh, and and in fact, how do we keep up with their the expectations of our employees who are getting amazing 
experiences out in uh, consumer technology, um, but may not be getting that same level of uh, experience in terms of their own internal IT services. So, in fact, that's a major challenge for uh, CIOs at the moment because you know they've got to deliver an experience internally that's um, um, up to scratch with what happens outside in the external market. Then they must understand that, or you have to teach them as it relates to their company and to their clients and indeed to the wider community. Yes, uh, when we when we formulate a strategy, so essentially what we do is uh, we create uh, uh, a strategic vision. Uh, we map that to the business motivation and strategy, and uh, we uh, we then provide execution roadmaps to help an organisation change uh, across people, process, information, and technology across the organisation. And uh, uh, that will then enable a particular service portfolio that they might be delivering internally or externally. So. Uh, the education process is about uh, understanding you know, what is the op- optimal service for technology, what is the optimal service for business, and what is the optimal service for, for customers, and then how do we actually make that happen. So give us some examples of what you've done. Recently, we... Uh, delivered a project uh, out of Holland. Uh, it was actually a, uh, ran a bit over two years where we, we were working with uh, ING Bank. Uh, the, uh, it was an interesting project because ING has been centralising and looking to leverage the strength of its brand globally um, uh, across its global banking network. These guys uh, needed to put together a, a new global organisation um, to deliver technology services to 46 um, countries, uh, to 46 country network. We assisted them in, in formulating the concept and uh, designing the operating model for that global organisation and uh, we uh, uh, essentially built the business case with them, uh, got it signed off and then we, uh, we assist, assisted in um, uh, rolling that out and actually acquiring their internal customers across the banking network. So that was a big project for us. Uh, it was an exciting project because we, uh, it was one of the first uh, major human centred design um, strategic architecture sort of fusion projects that we've done and, uh, and then that's you know, led to a variety of other projects um, of, of a similar nature. So from your side... You have to keep up with technological changes, and that's a bit like running a three-minute mile, isn't it? Yeah, well, we're kind of lucky in some respects because um, we don't necessarily need to develop the technologies, so we can watch the new technologies come and go and uh, provide advice about uh, what you bring online when and uh, what you decommission. To uh, understand uh, to industry or how do you actually become the disruptive uh, player in your industry, um, typically that's a, that's a question of business model, not just um, technology. And then uh, how, how do you actually go about making the change necessary to, to make that happen? And, you know, it's the same, uh, I'm sure, for a lot, a lot of different people, um, execute everything. It's not just having the idea, it's actually being able to execute on it. But I'd imagine that there would be issues uh, when you're coming up across a, a business model that's been operating in some industries for years and years and years, and the industry is quite stuck on that, but you see things changing. You'd meet a fair bit of resistance on that, wouldn't you? Yes, yes, you do. Uh, and resistance is, is a natural part of change in any organisation. You know, have people, people are often you know, quite change resistant and uh, want to do things the, the way they've always done them. One of the hardest things to do um, when you're uh, finding yourself in a disruptive situation, and take the law firms, for example, as, as a good example, in, law, in in the legal industry, e-discovery has been uh, one of the areas that uh, has grown quite rapidly. And uh, that has actually, in many ways, cannibalised a, a very important revenue stream for law firms because now they can deliver that at a much cheaper price. So it becomes a race to, race, race to the bottom for um, uh, price competitiveness between law firms. So on the one hand, they have to implement it to be competitive, but on the other hand, they're actually cutting out their own revenue streams in the process, and that can actually affect their viability over time. 
they're certainly starting to get onto it now, and, and particularly when you look at the Magic Circle law firms in, in the UK, which are head of the game, that's definitely um, uh, a concern for them. So give us an idea of the co- different industries you cover. Sure. We do a lot of work uh, in the uh, finance uh, sector, as you might imagine. You know, When you think of data-driven organisations like uh, finance, um, banking, even, even across to things like uh, logistics, uh, retail. Uh, we've done a lot of work in the university sector. We've done uh, work in, uh, across about uh, 16 universities. And the university um, model is being disrupted uh, at the moment. Uh, we do uh, a lot of work in the energy sector. Uh, so, so the move to um, uh, different different uh, models. Uh, we, we've got a very interesting client uh, in Europe uh, around um, uh, geospatial mapping. We also um, uh, also work with some smaller firms as well. So um, what, what I'm particularly excited about at the moment is a lot of the work we're focused on in the um, uh, social services space, so things like um, aged care, age and community care and disability care services. Uh, aged care is a space where there is, uh, you know, there are a number of operators that are operating the same way that they've been operating for the last 30 years or so. And so it's, it's ripe for um, technology disruption, uh, but there's also massive regulatory change happening in this space at the moment that's changing the dynamic of those businesses from, say, having a better product to actually having much stronger customer relationships. We're certainly doing a lot of work in government as well. And uh, so, so we've got a, a number of uh, clients in in Canberra as well as in the state government areas. Um, I think that uh, there is a lot of opportunity for uh, the government to um, harness a uh, design driven strategic approach to um, creating more meaningful services to our constituents, to, to their constituents and, and the citizens. And, um, you know, we're certainly excited about the prospect there. Which would make uh, design-driven services much more feasible for the broader population. And that, that's where it becomes exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the market is growing in this space. So you'll see a lot of design firms out there. You'll notice that um, McKinsey bought Luna. You'll notice that Accenture b- bought Fjord. All the major consultancies have actually decided to build uh, bolt on and, and develop their design capability. Um, um, what's exciting about what we're doing is I, I think we're we're very um, focused on the business design challenge. So the way that I talk about it with our team is, you know, and, and often with clients is, you know, you design a car, you design a house, you design clothes. Why don't we design businesses? And so we're bringing that way of thinking in, uh, to, to market. Hugh Evans, thank you very much for your time. Well, there you go. It's a very organised organisation by the sound of it. Yes, and uh, look, business design is everything. Everything, I think, now. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, when you look at Hugh's uh, list of clients, it's pretty impressive. Very impressive. Now, Sinclair and how we're going. Sinclair Davidson, the latest figures show there is a lower deficit than was originally forecast. And uh, what's your view about this? Well, I think Good news is always fantastic news, but the devil is in the detail. The deficit is still pretty huge. So 30-odd billion dollars still nonetheless in in deficit, which means that government borrowing is still going to be increasing. Um, The government is very happy and pleased, of course. Uh, It's a good news story for them in the grand scheme of things. But nonetheless, a lot of it is coming from increased tax revenue um, and not so much from reduced spending. And uh, um, as I've argued all along, the problem Australia faces is on the spending spending side, not so much on the tax revenue side. There was a reduction in spending. There was a reduction in spending, a reduction in uh, welfare spending, which you would hope if uh, fewer people needed welfare that uh, that has actually reduced. I, I'm not sure that that is the case. I suspect to a large extent it's tightening the rules and clamping down on welfare, which there is a limit to how much you can do um, on that side of things. So they've probably picked some low-hanging fruit, but it's hard to see how that's going to be going 
going forward, how you can keep picking that low-hanging fruit. So it's, uh, you know, re- reducing welfare is probably not as sustainable as actually cutting a lot of other government activity that, that, that they undertake. And they haven't actually cut that? No, no, they haven't done that. So, for example, um, there's a billion dollars a year which could come from privatizing the ABC, for example. Um, not to mention, of course, the, the, the capital value of the ABC, which they could gain. This, this announcement uh, uh, this week of an Australian space agency, it's quite astonishing. It's, uh, it's, it's uh, what we would possibly do with the space agency. That is, of course, spending. The NBN is, of course, spending, which uh, they've more or less kept off the budget because uh, they're still clinging to the notion that this is going to be a commercial venture. I, I think cutting expenditure on welfare, if it's unnecessary expenditure, is a good thing, but I don't really see that being sustainable. Uh, how much has uh, taxes contributed? The big growth has been around taxes, the uh, increase in uh, company tax. So last year, company profits increased very dramatically. So we would then expect that company taxation revenues would increase. And at the same time, uh, uh, property values have increased dramatically. And of course, as people are selling property, so they would be paying capital gains tax if it's not their home. So the property boom has contributed to this? The property boom has contributed to this too. And of course, there again, we've got to wonder, will property prices continue uh, um, increasing the way they have? Certainly, um, there were news reports during the week that uh, apartment prices in Brisbane, for example, are falling. I'd imagine apartment prices across the rest of the country would be flatlining. Of course, we're coming into spring and summer when people start selling their homes again. So uh, we will see whether or not that trend continues. But again, you can't hope to be making windfall gains. And and that's really what a property boom is for the government. It's it's a windfall gain. And of course, all the uh, figures are showing that property prices while not falling and moderating somewhat. Yes, yes. And of course, it's public policy to moderate property prices. So uh, we keep on hearing all this about uh, uh, younger generations not being able to get into homes and so on and so forth. So to the extent that the government wants to moderate property growth, that also means that they're moderating revenue that they receive from the property boom. So it looks to me to a large extent unsustainable cuts in spending and basically windfall gains in in, uh, taxation have led to a situation where the underlying deficit is actually looking much better. Now, to my mind, that means that the government still doesn't really have control over its own budget. So it doesn't seem to me that they've done enough work in the space to actually be claiming what they're claiming. But nonetheless, uh, a smaller budget uh, deficit is, is still a good thing. At the same time, there's still a lot of work to be done. And so uh, and so they actually have to tackle the major spending issues. They do have to tackle the major spending issues. And they do have to recognise that basically they are looking to balance the budget budget at a higher percentage of GDP than they than we have had in the past. And of course, government debt is continuing to grow while the, while the budget is in deficit. So it's just not a case of getting the budget back into surplus. It's also a case of paying down all that debt that we've accumulated since 2008. So that still means that the capacity of government to be innovative around budget policy is extremely limited, I'd imagine, for another 10, 15 years or so until we get debt levels down to more or less where they were in 2007. Well, this was interesting because uh, when Scott Morrison and Matthias Cormann were holding their press conference today, they declined to reveal when we would head into surplus. Well, unsurprising because, to be quite honest, we've been kicking this can down the road for, for many, many years. And I think in the last budget, it was 21, 22, I think was, was the year, right. which is looming. That's more or less two elections away from now. And of course, they're hoping
hoping to still be in office. They don't want that to come back and bite them when in 21, 22 people start saying, well, where's this budget surplus you've been promising us for all these years? They must know that uh, the, the, this decrease is more or less unsustainable. Um, they want to pick up the good news right now, but they don't want to be held to account for making sure that it, it continues into the future. So, I mean, your forecast would be that this would not continue? You're saying it's unsustainable? Yes, I, I don't see this rapid improvement to surplus actually occurring. Um, it's, it's very nice that it was better than expected, but more or less my, my, my underlying view is that government is still spending too much, and of course the problem is it's taxing too much. They're kind of hoping that economic growth is going to drag them into surplus, but of course we can't see massive economic growth while we have high levels of taxation on our economy, and also we have very high levels of um, regime uncertainty. Government Government keeps on talking about increasing the tax burden and then complains why business doesn't want to invest. It is, is unsurprising to me that when government keeps on talking about increasing taxes and increasing regulations that businesses don't want to invest, uh, which of course undermines their argument around growth pulling us out of deficit. Yes, and, and the other issue is that the debt level just keeps increasing. It does it? and will continue to increase by definition while the budget is in deficit. That must happen because the government must cover its expenditure in one way or another. Um, or conversely, they could start selling assets. But what I think has been particularly unhelpful is when the ACCC comes out and says privatisation has been a failure. That certainly does put a dampener on the notion of actually privatising anything else which the government could have to sell. And well, as I, as I argue, the, the most obvious thing would be uh, um, privatisation of the ABC, or even at least semi-privatisation of the ABC. And of course, but, but it's heading the other way when you have uh, speculation about governments buying power stations. Yes, yes. It's a <laughs> I mean, who would have thought we, we, we actually have a, a centre-right liberal government uh, um, talking about uh, um, owning power stations, putting restrictions on exports? It's the most astonishing thing, which of course also, again, confuses the market. I mean, if business doesn't know what to expect from a centre-right government, again, they're going to be loath to invest. Australia is an energy exporter. And when you have the government coming along saying, well, we're not going to allow you to export the energy that you've invested in for the purposes of exporting, um, again, it's unsurprising. Well, I mean, the the, the rhetoric, the government's rhetoric about uh, energy uh, strikes me as uh, moving very close to the Soviet-style model of uh, nationalisation and energy rationing. Yes, 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 it is. Um, But there there are simple solutions to this sort of problem. We can't complain we have a shortage of gas when we have two major eastern board states of Australia refusing to allow people to actually explore for more gas. Um, so I would be saying to New South Wales and Victoria, um, you guys need to do more about uh, developing the gas reserves you already have, as opposed to penalising private enterprise who have invested money in good faith, gotten clients around the world in good faith and want to export and earn a profit on the investment they've already incurred. Finally, I mean, when do you see the budget heading into surplus? When we see a lot more fiscal spending discipline from the federal government, I think we need to start saying things like there's no new spending until all old spending is under control. Um, and to a large extent, that means no space agencies. Um, what are they thinking? And uh, clamping down on things like the NBN and actually saying, let's draw a line and let's get, get control over what we are already spending before we think of spending an extra penny more. Sinclair Davidson, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. So what do you think, Leon? Well, it's very interesting. As he says, uh, you know, the government has announced a lower deficit, but all of that was on the back of 
cutting funds for uh, welfare, NDIS and stuff like that. And uh, all of that's unsustainable and they really have to get down to some serious business. Well, it's about time they did. It's not looking too good, is it? No. Right. Now, the news. What have you got, Leon? Well, Gary, the chair of the US Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen, says gradually raising interest rates is the most appropriate policy approach despite the central bank overstating the strength of the labour market and the rate of inflation. And in a speech to the National Association for Business Economics in Cleveland, Yellen said the trends in employment wages inflation had shifted since the Fed made its initial assessments. And as a result, she said in her words, it would be imprudent to keep monetary policy on hold until inflation is back to 2%. And following the speech, investors now see a 70% probability of a rate hike at the Fed's December meeting. And that means the greenback will rise and the Australian dollar probably drop. That's right. So that will affect markets globally. Good for exports, so for us. Now, the euro has snapped a rally and fallen on the back of worse than expected result for Angela Merkel in the German election. With her current coalition partner, the Social Democratic Party, ruling itself out of a deal with Merkel's Christian Democratic Union, Merkel will have to negotiate with the pro-business Free Democrat Party and the Green Party, and that's something that could take months. Merkel won a fourth term as German Chancellor in Sunday's election, but her victory was marred by the hollowing out of support for the two main parties. It also saw a surge for the populist AFD and a clear rebuke to her open doors refugee policy. The vote saw both Merkel's Christian Democrat-led bloc and a main challenger, Martin Schulz's Social Democrats, plunging to historic lows. What we have now is six parties poised to enter the lower house at Bundestag for the first time since 1953. The food, and what makes it more complicated is the Free Democrat Party is against further European Union integration. At the same time, the entry of the anti-immigrant alternative for Deutschland Party into Parliament could create new pressures for Merkel from the right. And all that will weigh on market sentiment although and has weighed heavily on the euro which has fallen to a one month low according to analysts they see the euro ending the year at $1.20 In one significant aspect namely the refugee question uh, what happened in the election in Germany is pretty much what led to Brexit. Indeed so all of that is something to watch Um, it's going to take a lot of time Australia, one of the world's largest exporters of liquefied natural gas faces worse than expected gas shortages on the east coast according to watchdogs the shortage is around 110 petajoules of gas more than three times the figure anticipated early in the year and the australian competition consumer commission and the australian energy market operation delivered alarming reports warning that shortages were imminent and uh, the prime minister malcolm turnbull said the government would introduce export controls if the industry didn't act and as a result australia's largest gas companies yesterday assured the federal government they will increase supply to the eastern states next year potentially avoiding an energy crisis and export restrictions but the big question of course is how much they'll charge because they're still whatever happens will still be paying more domestically than uh, they pay in japan and china that is quite an issue what's interesting though is that they have given the gas companies are given an undertaking to report back to the ACCC. so let's just watch that space now agl has made it clear that the company's unlikely to sell or extend the life of the Liddell power station in New South Wales. AGL Chief Executive Andrew Vasey has told shareholders that extending the life of Liddell would cost too much money and a sale would be challenging because of its complexity. And he told shareholders of the country's AGM that AGL had been assessing its options for Liddell since April 2015. He said AGL would present its plans to the Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull and energy markets operator AMEO by early December as part of its commitment it already made to the government. Now Mr Turnbull has asked AGL to sell or extend 
extend the life of the 45-year-old Liddell plant. And AGL says it's weighing up this up against other options to replace its power supplies. And Mr. Vasey outlined a plan that would replace the output with a mix of renewables, battery storage and a gas-fired plant at Liddell and the base-fired coal power station would also be upgraded. Yeah, and the way things are, the AGL dug its heels in and I think the uh, government's going to get a bloody nose out of it. Well, AGL and the government are heading for a big, big confrontation. Now, the other interesting piece of news is that speculation of interest rate hikes combined with household debt and weak wages growth has seen Australian consumer confidence plunging. The ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index eased slightly in the week, ending September 20. Slipping 0.6%. What was interesting was that that was driven by a solid decline in views about future economic conditions. Now, consumers' views about current economic conditions remained unchanged, rising only 0.1%. But consumers were less optimistic about future economic conditions, and that fell by a massive 6.5% last week. And it's kept the four week moving average aggregate economic conditions index at well below its long run average. The housing market's one of the big factors in that. Indeed, indeed. And there was a fascinating report from the ANZ this week showing that deteriorating levels of housing affordability is seen is seeing young people increasingly unable to form households, reducing the current demand for homes. And in a nutshell, according to the ANZ, the housing market is now being shaped by young people priced out of buying a home. The ANZ Economic Insight report found that the census 2016 data showed people in the 20 to 34 age group were pairing off and forming households later in life. As a result, the overall demand for housing was cut to 21,000 dwellings this year, compared with 117,000 home shortage that would have been the case if the what they call the headship ratio had stayed at 2011 level. Also, the time taken to save for a deposit has been increasing over the past five years. In, in Sydney, the time taken to save a 20% deposit for an average dwelling price is now sitting at over 10 years. Melbourne is not much better at nine years, and all that has been compounded by weak wages growth, which is the slowest on record, and this was distorting the market. The research showed that the housing construction had not kept up with population growth, resulting in a significant shortage of dwellings across most of the country. And while there'd been a pickup in construction, it was largely, in the ANZ's words, playing catch-up after a decade of not building enough housing. Despite the increase in construction since 2013, changing household formation was now shaping the market. Along with the growth of population, it's the biggest in years, basically. It's the biggest increase since 2008, according to the latest ABS figures. It's uh, it's up to 24.9. Now, the federal government has announced a $4.4 billion improvement in its bottom line, which was something we discussed with Sinclair. That's the size of the budget deficit, which is come in lower than forecast five months ago when the budget was unveiled. The deficit is now $33.2 billion versus $37.6 billion in May. And to deliver that, the government cut back its spending on the welfare side, reducing it by $5 billion less than forecast on budget night. Rising property and asset markets combined with higher profits boosted tax collections and receipts from superannuation fund taxes were $488 million above the 2017-18 budget estimate. And Mr Morrison said government net debt was $322.3 billion or $2.8 billion better than estimated at the time of the 2017-18 budget. As far as it goes, but didn't go far enough. That's right. Uh, Sinclair said it's not 
that sustainable. No. Australia is finally getting its own space agency. Now, following the government's announcement in July of a review into the country's space capabilities led by an expert group chaired by former CSIRO Chief Executive Dr Megan Clark, AC, the Acting Minister for Industry, Innovation and Science, Michaela Cash, said the space agency would now go ahead and Dr Clark will now chair the expert reference group which will focus on writing a charter for the new agency as part of its report to be handed down in March next year. Now, Australia is one of only two OECD countries without a space agency of its own, and Senator Cash said Australia needed to be part of a sector that's growing fast. Yeah, maybe we could send the government to Mars. That's right. That's right. I think a lot of people would be thinking that. Now, Gary, the world's biggest dairy supplier, New Zealand-based Fonterra, has confirmed it's made a bid for Murray Goldburn. Managing Director of Fonterra Australia, Rin Dodonka, confirmed his company had made the bid for Murray Goldburn, which told the market last month that it had received confidential, unsolicited, indicative proposals from third parties, including takeovers. He told ABC Rural Radio, the answer is yes, we have put forward a proposal. It's non-binding and indicative, and at this point we're going to sit tight and give the MG board the respect they deserve to consider all proposals. He didn't go into details, but indicated the companies would be a good fit. Now, Murray Goldburn is Australia's largest milk processor, although it's slipping with its milk supply falling from more than 3 billion litres to an estimated uh, 2 billion litres of milk this year. And New Zealand-based Fonterra is catching up. It's expected to collect 2 billion of litres of milk this year. Now, the combined companies would be collecting 40 to 50% of milk produced in Australia. So any takeover is likely to attract the attention of the Australian Competition Consumer Commission. Mr. Dodonka confirmed the takeover interest when the company was announcing its profit figures and Fonterra's net profit fell 11% to New Zealand 745 million. Revenue rose 12% to New Zealand 9.2 billion. And Fonterra attributed the lower profit to reduced margins across the business. Yeah, well, the ACCC will take an interest in it, but I don't really know how you're going to save Murray Goldman without somebody like Fonterra coming to the you rescue. Need, you need an outfit like Fonterra because they're yeah, very good. It's the biggest dairy company in the world. That's right. Got bags of muscle, as the profit figures show. That's right, indeed. And finally, Gary, China-backed Yankol Australia has increased its stake in the Hunter Valley by exercising its option to buy a near 29% stake in the Australian coal mining joint venture, the Walkworth operation from Japan's Mitsubishi Corp for $230 million. And in its statement to the market, Yankol said the acquisition is expected to be completed by March 2018. It's subject to regulatory approval from the Foreign Investment Review Board. It also rests on the waiver or non-exercise of existing uh, preemptive rights held by other minority participants in the joint venture. Yankol said this brings its stake in the Walkworth project to about 85%. It also increases Yankol's share of coal production from the integrated Mount Thorley Walkworth operations from 64.1% to 82.9%. And Yankol's acquisition is significant because it comes weeks after an outbid Glencore for Rio Tinto's coal and allied business, which operates coal mines in the Hunter Valley region. So Yankol is really expanding into the Hunter Valley coal area. That's where coal ought to be, not in power stations. That's right. Indeed, indeed. And that's it for this week, Gary. And uh, next week, we're talking to uh, Mirabai Winford, who set up a great company of babyware. Very interesting. Babyware market is very good, very specialised, and you can learn about pure baby. That's right. So we're looking forward to that. In the meantime, you can tune in to us on Twitter at TalkingBizBZ or on Facebook. Take care, and we'll talk to you next week.